everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Eden Yago from, from Sovereign. Eden, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be here. Awesome. So you guys basically just launched this this new product. Uh, it seems to be gaining a, a bit of traction. It's called Sovereign's Zero product. Explain the benefits of that and then why it excites you right now. Yeah, so Sovereign Zero is a way to borrow um, dollars using your Bitcoin. And it is simply the best way to borrow dollars with your Bitcoin. Um, and I think it's basically the best way in every uh, metric. So the most important thing is like everything else that we're trying to do with Sovereign, we're working to build applications that are decentralized, permissionless, uncensorable for Bitcoin. Um, so we place a huge focus on self-custody and, um, and, and on building um, code that um, operate in such a way that there is no central intermediary. There are no trusted parties. So the big advantage here is that you're not trusting like a Celsius or a BlockFi with your Bitcoin. You don't give your Bitcoin away to anyone else. Second thing is um, you are um, borrowing at the best interest rate possible. You're borrowing at 0% interest. And there, that sounds like it should have a catch. And there is kind of a catch. And we should talk about what that catch is. And the third thing is the collateral ratio. So the collateral ratio, um, the lowest collateral ratio you can start with is 150%. So like if you wanted to borrow $100, you'd need $150 of Bitcoin. But it can go down lower than anyone else can, can offer. Um, and that is to 110%. Uh, and then the final thing is that um, every time you use zero, not only uh, are the transaction fees that you're paying going to Bitcoin miners and helping to secure Bitcoin more by providing a bigger security budget for Bitcoin. But also um, the uh, dollars that you're borrowing are sovereign dollars. They're, they're dollars that were created by the Bitcoin community for Bitcoiners. And that means that they're competing uh, with the Fed instead of being centralized dollars like USDC or Tether. Yeah, it's very interesting. So basically, you know, you can borrow at 0%. And you, you're basically minting this sovereign dollar, this new, this type of over-collateralized Bitcoin stablecoin. How does this stablecoin, without getting too technical, um, re retain its peg? Yeah, so you don't have to get very technical at all. It's a very, very simple mechanism. At any given time, people can swap sovereign dollars for $1 worth of Bitcoin. And we have uh, um, you know, a saying that we use, which is uh, no redemption, uh, no pig, right? So, um, you know, we've seen a whole bunch of different stable coins that are uh, promising to maintain some kind of pig. And the problem is that um, you either have nothing backing them or you have too little backing them or what you have are dollars in somebody's bank backing them and then, you know, it's an IOU to um, a bank account. Um, we are you know, focused on building sound finance for sound money. And so the promise of maintaining that peg is very, very important. Uh, and we protect the downside by always providing for that redeemability. And if you can always redeem a dollar's worth of value for a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, then you can maintain the peg. There is a way that the peg could break. The peg could break to the upside, right? So you could see a scenario where um, sovereign dollars become more valuable than the dollar. Um, and that also, you know, is not unlimited, like people will arb that they'll just 
create more sovereign dollars. Um, but uh, but our primary focus is making sure that it's never going to be worth less than a dollar for any given period of time. So could very big picture this zero product initiate like the early stages of pure shards quote unquote speculative attack on the dollar or on fiat currencies so i think what you so you know my understanding of a speculative attack right is kind of like what soros did with uh, the bank of england right so how did soros get so rich well he was kind of wealthy beforehand but he was running a fund and he saw that um the pound was pegged to a certain value of the dollar and he didn't think that the Bank of England would be able to maintain that pick. Why couldn't they maintain the pick? Because they didn't have enough dollars to redeem, right? It's the same problem. Uh, and so what he did is he started shorting the pound. And eventually he created so much pressure shorting the pound that the peg broke. And he broke the Bank of England. Made a lot of money doing it. Now, um, <clears throat> there is a different situation with the dollar. The dollar is not pegged to anything. And so you can't run that kind of speculative attack with uh, the dollar. But what you can do, and what I think we are seeing happening, is that the dollar loses value as people start to try and get out of the dollar and into uh, better money. Now, better money is Bitcoin, but better money can also be dollar-backed Bitcoins because um, they're unconfiscatable. Uh, they can be held by anyone. You don't need to have a bank account in the U.S., which the vast majority of the population can't do. And like I said, they could potentially be protected to the upside, right? We, as the Bitcoin community, could, whenever we chose, decide, okay, we actually don't want um, the dollar, uh, like the USD, to be our standard. We want, you know, we've got a dollar. Canada has a dollar, Australia has a dollar, Bitcoin is going to have a dollar, and it's just going to be the best dollar, and everyone want, is going to want our dollar. And then what you can see is rather than a speculative attack, it becomes like a, like a black hole, right? People want to sell the inferior money and buy the better money. And that becomes easier if that better money is useful for everyday payments, is useful for savings, is useful to understand because it's not as volatile as Bitcoin. Bitcoin is probably going to remain volatile you know, until everyone is using it as a medium of exchange, if that ever happens. But what we can do with Bitcoin is we can use it as the most pristine asset for creating a stable asset, and that's what we're working on, and that's what we've created with the sovereign dollar. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very fascinating. I guess, you know, a lot of people are going to have concerns with all of the things that have been going on with, with various stable coins. But from what I've seen, this is, you know, not definitely not perfect, but... Uh, it seems a lot more promising than, than other projects that have been released and some have blown up and, and, and some haven't. So I know, go yeah, ahead, yeah. I, just on that, I think, you know, there's something really important here, which is that um, more than any other crypto asset, stable coins have, um, you know, proven to be true competitors to Bitcoin. Uh, well, between 2013 and 2017, I was running a remittance company. Uh, and we were focused on remittance around the world. And what we would do is we would use Bitcoin as a settlement mechanism. Now, um, we've seen that industry shift a lot. Most of the crypto remittances today are done using stablecoins, primarily Tether, not using Bitcoin. Because it's much easier for um, people to price uh, and, and, and transact in dollars 
than the speculative asset that is Bitcoin. So if we want to see a path to mass adoption, right, that means that Bitcoin needs to be more than um, a long-term store of value. It needs to be a short and medium-term savings uh, product, and it needs to be an instantaneous payments product. And that requires basically having a low-volatility asset, ideally one uh, which is very familiar. And so the dollar is the most familiar, the most accepted. Yeah, um, I know Zero is built on RSK, which, from my understanding, is is just a, a side chain on Bitcoin. Can you explain what RSK is? Yeah, so RSK, uh, the full name is Rootstock, right? So Rootstock is a side chain, and what is a, a side chain? A side chain is well, everyone's got their own definition of a side chain. I'll give you my definition of what a good side chain for Bitcoin is. A good side chain for Bitcoin uh, is a separate blockchain. So it's got different rules, um, and as a result, it provides a way of providing more functionality to Bitcoin and greater scalability to Bitcoin. And it's tied to Bitcoin at minimum by having Bitcoin rather than some other crypto asset be the um, native currency and the way that you pay fees. And it should also be tied to Bitcoin security and rootstock is the only sidechain of its kind in that way. So it's, um, it uses Bitcoin as its native currency, and it is merge-mined. In other words, Bitcoin miners mine Rootstock as well as Bitcoin mainchain, so that Rootstock is secured by the Bitcoin miners. And in addition to that, the transactions that occur on Rootstock pay Bitcoin miners, and, and in that way, increase uh, the scalability of Bitcoin and increase the security budget for Bitcoin. Yeah, interesting. So if RSK is, is another blockchain, you know, I'm very comfortable running a Bitcoin core node. I like to be able to, you know, view my UTXOs that I own and confirm that and know that, you know, I compiled this from from the source code and, and I can confirm that this is Bitcoin core and I have Bitcoin. Can anyone run an RSK node and verify that they have RBTC? Yeah, you can. Anyone can run a, a rootstock node. Um And, uh, I mean, obviously you can interact in the same way that you can interact with Bitcoin. You don't have to run the node, but, um, anyone, it's totally permissionless. Uh, Anyone can, can validate their own transactions, um, and make sure that they're participating in the network in an active way. So I guess what trade-offs, I guess, would RSK Bitcoin have compared to, to actual Bitcoin, other than the fact that it is its own side chain, but like, how how could it possibly be like less secure? Like why is it less secure potentially? Well, it's any time you add anything, right? Uh, you're in- introducing additional vectors of risk. So you know, Lightning Network introduces additional vectors of risk. Um, using uh, uh, SPV uh, wallet uh, introduces additional vectors of risk. With Rootstock, this is definitely the case. And there are two primary ways in which you're taking on additional risk when you're using Rootstock. The first is that Rootstock isn't mined by all of the Bitcoin miners. It's mined by about 65% of the hash rate. So by you know, um, that simple definition, it is less secured than Bitcoin. In addition to that, um, you could potentially imagine that it's easier to 51% attack 
uh, rootstock than it is Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the primary driver of revenue for the miners. They don't want to, you know, spoil that, uh, 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 you know, they don't want to kill the goose. Um, but they could potentially exploit rootstock without uh, uh, damaging the Bitcoin main chain or the Bitcoin price in the same way. There's a more serious, I, 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 while I think those are serious considerations, I think they're less serious. I think the bigger consideration is that rootstock, the way you use your Bitcoin rootstock is rootstock has what's known as a POW pig, a proof of work pig. And the way this proof of work peg works is you have what is effectively a federation or a multi-sig of pegnatories. These are signatories to the peg. And there's a very robust and complex system where these signatories, um, they're running HSMs. They feed uh, SPV proofs of Bitcoin and rootstock to these HSMs. These HSMs sign transactions, and then they countersign the transactions. And um, so it's probably the most secure multisig in the world, but it's still a multisig. And what does that mean? That means that if um, a majority of the pegnatories were taken offline, right, uh, then the funds would get stuck in the peg for at least one year. Right? They would get stuck in the peg until uh, either the pegnatories came back online or within one year, the funds would be automatically transferred to a separate address from where they could be um, reallocated or redistributed. There's also the case where if you managed to um, compromise the majority of HSMs, which is very difficult, right? I mean, there are scenarios where you could imagine an HSM being compromised um, or a whole class of HSMs being compromised. Um, but the HSMs that we're using are basically similar to the private signing key that you have in a ledger. So if the peg is compromised, then all of ledger and all of the funds being held in all of those hardware wallets are compromised in the same way. Uh, but there's an additional layer of protection, uh, which is that you would also need to compromise a majority of the uh, peg materials. Now, if you manage to do both of those things, then potentially the funds could be stolen. So those are the two... Uh, most severe risks, and I think they're particularly severe because we could solve them technologically. We could introduce changes into Bitcoin, which would allow us to create um, trustless pools, trustless pegs. Um, and I think probably of all of the different innovations we could introduce to Bitcoin, that's probably the most important one. However, all of that said, um, the system has been running for five years. Rootstock has been running as a system for five years. Um, a lot of people have looked at it. No one's managed to compromise it in any way. And um, I think it's, um, it's about as secure as you could possibly get. It's certainly far more secure than using centralized services or, or um, you know, other uh, DeFi chains or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. I do want to get into specific changes that you think, you know, Bitcoin itself should incorporate later on. What now that we've talked about risk to, to rootstock specifically, what risk do you see applying to, to zero specifically? Yeah, so I think that's an excellent question. And maybe before I get into the risks, uh, it, it might be worthwhile talking about how the catch that we mentioned, right? What's the catch, right? How can the system offer loans at zero percent interest? Um, so 
when most people think about a loan, what they're thinking about is um, there's somebody's got money and they go to an intermediary, they give that money to the intermediary, and then that intermediary lends out that money to someone else. This is, you know, the simple way of doing it, but it's actually not the way the vast majority of loans are made. The vast majority of loans are made by banks, right? So um, when you go to the bank and you get a loan for a house or a car, uh, they don't take money from someone else and give it to you. What they do is they print money out of nowhere. That's how the vast majority of money gets made. And um, the reason they can do this is because on their books, right, the way they account for it is they say, we've got a house, right, we now own your house, and so we can print the number of dollars that is uh, equal to the value of, you know, your house minus, you know, whatever margin of uh, safety we want. Um, wealthy people can do this with a whole bunch of different assets, right? So Elon Musk does it with uh, Tesla shares and uh, Jeff Bezos does it with uh, his yacht. Uh, if you're wealthy, you can go to a bank and you can say, look, I got a $50 million yacht. I don't really want to pay taxes. I don't really want to spend my money. I'd much prefer that you gave me um, a $30 million loan and I'll spend that down, right? Banks are not willing to do that with regular people because, I mean, if it's a rich person, I can go after a rich person, I can go after their yacht, but what am I going to do with normal people, right? What am I going to go after? So um, basically with zero, what we're looking to do is we're looking for the Bitcoin community to compete directly with the banks, compete directly with the Fed, and basically do the same thing, but in a decentralized fashion. So when you come to Sovereign and you take, you borrow with your Bitcoin, um, no one is lending you those dollars. They're being printed just like the bank would print. Um, and on sort of, you know, the books, uh, what we have instead is an over-collateralized pool of Bitcoin. Um, and so what are the risks here? Well, this whole system is automated by smart contracts. There's been a million hacks of smart contracts, right? So that's the most obvious risk, right? If, if someone were to compromise sovereign, you could see all of those funds or part of those funds potentially drained. We have a high degree of confidence uh, in our smart contracts. Uh, one of the things that we always do is we use um, contracts that have been in the wild and held billions of dollars of funds um, for long periods of time. We don't, um, you know, introduce large amounts of funds to, to risky technology. We see Bitcoin as the most conservative, sound money part of the ecosystem, and so safety first, right? Um, but, but there is always such a risk. Second kind of risk is that you, you know, the price of Bitcoin drops. What happens if the price of Bitcoin drops and you don't, you haven't kept enough margin, right? Um, then the value of your Bitcoin could potentially get to a point where it was below the value of your loan. Now, we can't allow that. The system can't allow it. It has to stay over-collateralized all the time. And so if your collateral ratio drops below 110%, you'll be left with your dollars. You'll have your dollars still. But um, your Bitcoin will be taken by the system and sold on the market to recapitalize the system. And then there's a third risk. And the third risk is this. Uh, Remember I said you can always make sure that the peg is in place if you always allow for redemption. So somebody could potentially come and want to redeem. Now, it's not attractive to redeem uh, these dollars, right? It's much more attractive to buy, uh, you know, if you, if you want Bitcoin with sovereign dollars, you just go on the market and you buy Bitcoin because there's a fee 
associated with redemptions. But potentially someone could want to redeem. And if they do, that Bitcoin has to come from somewhere. And where is it going to come from? It's going to come from the lowest collateralized uh, line of credit, right? So if you, Joe, were a super degen and you opened up a line of credit with zero and you let it get really, really low, and now somebody else came to redeem, it's your Bitcoin that will be used to redeem against their sovereign dollars. So you'll get the sovereign dollars, but they'll get the Bitcoin. So I guess you would basically, they would get $1 worth of Bitcoin and you would get $1 worth of sovereign well, dollars? In practice, or? you would already have had the, you, and when you took out the loan through the line oh, of credit, okay. you already have it. But um, So basically what would happen is your debt would be dropped by a dollar, right? Um, but the... The, the thing that we want, right, we want this to be a tool for long-term hodlers, right? It's something that we've built basically for ourselves. And, um, and so we want people to be able to come to the system with the knowledge that in 99 out of 100 times, the Bitcoin that they put in, five years from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, they'll be able to take out if they pay back the loan or if they just, you know, pay off the loan from the, whatever the increase in value in Bitcoin has been in the meantime. We would like you to stay with your Bitcoin, to continue to hold your Bitcoin, but, but, but to be able to put it to use. Yeah, definitely. I like what you said at the beginning where how money now in, in today's system is, is kind of created through lending. And this is just another way to create dollars, but, a, you know, a unique type of dollar. Um, how, do, how are people currently using this product? Like, are they borrowing dollars and buying more Bitcoin? Are they borrowing dollars and maybe putting it in their savings account and earning a 2% interest on those dollars? Or do you know what they're doing? We, so this activity all happens on chain. So we can see some of the activity. We can't see all of the activity. What we know is that about 66% of the time, um, what people are doing is they are buying more Bitcoin. And, you know, it's like, People like me, we're 100% in Bitcoin. We see the price dropping. We would want to buy more Bitcoin, but we're, how are we going to do it? We don't have any fiat, right? So it's a way of buying more Bitcoin with your Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of think of it as like hodler's delight, right? Like it's like making sure that more and more of the Bitcoin accumulates with strong hands. Um, about 30, like about a third, like 33% of the time, what we're seeing is that the sovereign dollar gets converted into USDC or Tether or something else. And a, the majority of the time that that happens, it's being sent to an exchange. And so what we assume is happening is that people are using it um, to convert into fiat. Now, we did a survey with the users and we got a whole bunch of answers about what people are doing when they convert it to fiat. Um, some people are using it to pay off college debt. Some people, although much less now, <laughs> some people, um, you know, are using it to refinance, uh, loans like mortgages. Some people are using it, um, for vacations. Uh, a bunch of people have asked us for early access because they want to buy Christmas gifts. Um, yeah, uh, Satoshi Claus is coming to town. Um, so, uh, th those seem to be the two primary use cases. Yeah. Yeah, I think this kind of becomes like increasingly inter interesting in a high inflation, high interest rate environment, right? Like if you can borrow dollars from zero at zero percent and your other alternatives to borrow dollars are maybe Fed funds or LIBOR plus, you know, a risk premium, like it, it, you can literally borrow dollars at zero percent. It makes 
I feel like it potentially makes a lot of capital want to chase Bitcoin and then refinance their existing debt and the existing system. And it yeah. kind of becomes this feedback loop. Where if you're creating more sovereign dollars, then that's actually more dollars that are getting created. Maybe the Fed has to raise their rates even more to try to weigh in that inflation. But by raising rates more, you know, people want to create more sovereign dollars. What do you, so the, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's a trade, a kind of trade called a cash and carry. It's basically an arbitrage trade using interest, right? So let's say you can borrow at a low rate and um, lend out at a high rate. I mean, then you should. Now, the problem with most cash and carry is that you're able to do this because you're borrowing with one kind of risk profile uh, and lending in a totally different, like more risky risk profile. Um, but uh, there are, you, you know, if you can borrow at 0% interest, like, you know, what's always frustrated me is, you know, you have these big banks and they're basically able to borrow or, and have been able to borrow basically 0% interest. And then that cascades to the wealthiest corporations and their wealthiest customers uh, who are also able to borrow at very low interest rates and then buy up assets. And that's why houses have become so expensive. That's why everything has become so expensive. Okay, but now we're Bitcoiners. We have the most pristine type of collateral in the world, right? The most easily obtainable collateral from the perspective of the smart contract that's issuing dollars. Like there's no, I don't need to go to court to, to, to get your yacht and sell it. There's no cost to me. So I can offer 0% loans, right, as of the protocol. And so people could potentially um, take out 0% loans and then, um, you know, just put them in a bank, uh, buy bonds, whatever they want, and, and earn a higher interest rate elsewhere. So this could potentially become a huge uh, driver of, of uh, you know, funds moving into Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I said, like we talked about, there's definitely a lot of short-term risk in like the technology and, and maybe the smart contracts and the RSK sidechain. Um, but if it works and it's proven over time, maybe like 10 years, people, a lot more people, institutions, large, wealthy Bitcoiners will be a lot more comfortable and, and really start this idea of kind of a quote-unquote speculative attack. You mentioned uh, earlier um, regarding rootstock and, and just Bitcoin itself in general that there are you know, a few potential like last changes that could be made to the base layer. I saw you mentioned covenants and like a ZK proof opcode. What, what is that? So maybe, um, look, I think that what's special about Bitcoin is that about as close as we've come as the human species, like there's many things that are special about Bitcoin, but one of them and one of the fundamental ones is that it's almost like a law of nature, right? Rules without rulers. Um, every 10 blocks, every 10 minutes is a block. The rules are not supposed to change. But in truth, we do change the rules of Bitcoin. Um, every time there's a soft fork, we're changing the rules. And um, people talk about the ossification of Bitcoin. Uh, you know, Bitcoin doesn't change or shouldn't change. But um, I think we need to go further. I think we need to be able to say Bitcoin's never going to change. Um, and at the same time, we need to allow Bitcoin to uh, innovate and to have build an entire economy around it. Um, right now, we're in an uncomfortable position. Um, users have to choose between an imperfectly reliable system like Bitcoin, which is likely to be very similar the way it is now in a year, in five years, and you know, for their grandchildren, or 
if they want to be able to build systems um, which can do more things, like, you know, zero loans were until recently, you know, without smart contracts, you can't do zero loans for Bitcoin. You have to go through an intermediary. Um, so for most of these use cases, most people have been going to things like Ethereum or Solana or whatever, right? Which change rapidly, uh, which are not reliable, which are far more centralized. So what we should do is we should um, get rid of this false dichotomy, right? We should make sure that you don't have to choose, that you can have your Bitcoin and eat it too, right? Um, and to do that, we need to, at the se and I think in the, you know, with one sweep, with one change, we basically can say, all right, no more changes to Bitcoin, permaware, right? It's the way it is now is the way it's going to be for your great grandchildren. And two, and yet we can still build everything on Bitcoin. And how do we do that? The way we do that is we need to create a way for Bitcoin to be able to trustlessly move onto side chains or other systems. Right? We need to allow systems to interact trustlessly. And then any innovation that we want to build, just like Sovereign is building these innovations now, we could build uh, for Bitcoin. We could build in infinite scale. We can build um, uh, smart contracts. We can create um, you know, uh, quantum secure systems. We can go to war with the AI overlords in the future. I don't know. Whatever it is that we need to do, we'll have the tools to do that. Now, that basically requires the introduction of a change to Bitcoin. And I call this like the last change to Bitcoin. And there are basically two versions of what this change could be. One version is called drive chain. Um, and it creates this um, sort of uh, way of allowing um, Bitcoin miners to become um, the custodians for all of the Bitcoin that is pegged out and into Bitcoin. And the other is using what's known as zero-knowledge proofs. Um, or uh, it's basically this way of using sophisticated cryptography to prove that you own a Bitcoin in the pool um, without uh, having to reveal anything about yourself or without the Bitcoin miners having to know anything about what was happening outside of the Bitcoin chain. So to introduce this kind of peg, we basically need to introduce two changes to Bitcoin. One is we need to introduce covenants, Right, the type of um, you know scripting and opcode around covenants, and we need to introduce an opcode around um, zero knowledge proofs. And um, you know, I'm in a little bit of a crusade right now, um, both to get these um, BIPs written and to make sure that we reach community consensus to introduce these things, because I think you know it's basically game over once we do those things. Game over in the best way possible. Yeah, fair enough. To, to introduce those things as BIPs and to, to actually implement them into Bitcoin, would they, and you may not know the answer, I guess, but would they be soft forks or would they end up being the card forks? No, this can totally be done by a soft fork. Um, with Sovereign, what we're doing is we're building out this functionality using the PowPeg in such a way that you don't actually need any changes to Bitcoin. But that has the weaknesses or potential exploits that I described, right? It's not perfect. We would like to have cryptographic like assurances, like mathematically provable this um, once implemented won't fail. Um, and so for that, we need a soft fork. Interesting. So if these two soft forks inevitably like got, or maybe I guess it could be one soft fork with both of them potentially, but if they ever got introduced, 
would RSK need to be like completely rewritten rootstock sidechain into like the the new version, or could it just be? Would it still work as is? What that would makes you, sense. <laughs> yeah, so rootstock would have to hard fork, not Bitcoin. Rootstock would have to hard fork out the PowPeg and hard fork in the trustless peg. Got it. That, but I guess if the soft forks ever actually got introduced into Bitcoin, everyone that had rootstock Bitcoin would probably be on board with just switching over to the new better rootstock. Yeah, the only thing that would interrupt them along the way would be the dancing in the streets. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, so we talked a lot about Zero. Uh, what other products does Sovereign offer, and what, what other things are you guys working on? So Sovereign has – it's kind of crazy how much the Sovereign community have built out. Um, uh, so Sovereign's got um, Bitcoin trading. You can trade Bitcoin against uh, dollars, um, so like stable coins, as well as a bunch of other sort of crypto assets. Um, there's margin trading. Um, there's um, borrowing and lending, like you can lend out your Bitcoin and earn interest. Um, there's governance systems. There's uh, NFT tools. Um, there's bridges to other chains so that you could like move your stable coins to another chain. Um, and um, uh, in the works are also perpetual swaps and futures. So basically, the idea is to be able to create derivatives on the basis of Bitcoin that would allow you to trade any asset. So you hold Bitcoin, but you can, you know, buy Tesla, right? Huh. Yeah, very interesting. One last question on, on I guess, Rootstock. Um, how would you compare that? Because, you know, some people call Liquid a, a quote-unquote sidechain. Some people would just say, hey, it's just a federation. It's not a sidechain. Well, how would you compare those two? So... Um, the biggest difference is that Liquid, the consensus mechanism on Liquid is, or, or, so there are three big differences, right? The biggest, from a security perspective, is that the consensus mechanism is a federation instead of Bitcoin miners. The second is that it's not a fully Turing complete system. Um, it doesn't have sort of like the EVM um, virtual machine or the the you know, the full set of, of smart contracts and smart contract tooling and security tooling that um, Rootstock and Sovereign have built out. And the third, I've been told recently that this changed, but I haven't checked. Um, but the last time I looked at it, um, you couldn't move your Bitcoin uh, permissionlessly onto Liquid. You need to go through an exchange um, because only the, the federators can mint new sort of LBTC. Got it. Interesting. Uh, so I guess slightly changing topics, one of our last questions for, for this podcast. Um, everyone likes to talk about price. What do you think about Bitcoin's price? I mean, we've been in a fairly dark bear market since the end of last year. Have we bottomed yet or do you have any opinion on this? So as a general discipline, I try not to think about price uh, at all. Um, my first Bitcoin I bought in 2011 um, from a guy in a Panera bread. And um, I, I haven't sold it or any of my other Bitcoin. Like it's not, and I think not looking at price helps with that. <laughs> um, but um, I don't know. I mean, like I can't predict this stuff. I do think that the market, like the global market is very, very vulnerable. Um, 
and we could see a massive crash and that could impact Bitcoin to the downside. Um, I'm more concerned about something else though, which is I feel like we have, um, we, we haven't built enough tooling like zero, like sovereign trading. We haven't built, um, trustless pegs. We haven't built, um, for Bitcoin, a lot of the tools that I think we should be building. And I, as a result, you know, there's this dilemma that I was talking about that devs have and that users have. Like, am I going to use the most reliable system or am I going to use the system which offers me the most features, the most innovation, the most exciting stuff? And also, tr frankly, the most, like, tools, like the most DeFi products, the most, yeah. Um, and the longer Bitcoin waits, uh, and the longer, and what is Bitcoin? It's us, right? The longer we wait before you know, um, introducing what I call the last change or things like it and building things like sovereign, uh, the more that dilemma is going to impact us, right? We're going to see more competition. We're going to see more funds flowing to other systems. And I think that right now is hurting the Bitcoin price in particular, you know, there's, you know, Ethereum is going through the merge. Everyone's very excited. Um, Bitcoin dominance is dropping in the bear market, which is something which has never happened before. Uh, I think we as a community need to wake up and recognize that um, Bitcoin sort of winning this game just because it's the best, like it's the most reliable, uh, is not inevitable. In fact, the most reliable, the most sound money has always never won, right? It's always been money that in some way or another um, has had some kind of unfair advantage. And I want to make sure that Bitcoin's got as many unfair advantages as possible. Yeah, I think you made like a, an interesting point about uh, going back to the, the macro like situation in general, where like Bitcoin is this highly volatile asset, and with the zero protocol, we're kind of using Bitcoin as this collateral, which high, high volatility and using it as collateral to to leverage up on it is kind of like two things that don't really mix well together. It's one of the reasons why I'm personally not a huge fan of of doing things like this unless you, I guess, have an extremely conservative loan-to-value ratio or collateral ratio, and you're, the, where you're investing the money is also extremely conservative, then I think maybe it makes sense. Like, maybe it makes sense to deposit $300 worth of Bitcoin, borrow $100, and then put that $100 into, like, treasury bonds, like, in very short duration to where both... If things start to go south, like the treasury bonds aren't going to collapse, you can sell them, you can pay back your loan. In the meantime, you earned, you know, your 2%, 3% interest or whatever it was. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that idea of how maybe, you know, zero sounds awesome and it's great, but borrowing against Bitcoin is kind of like, is it a dangerous activity? <laughs> I mean, it's basically you're taking leverage, right? Um, so, and you're taking debt. Uh, so it's... Um, always going to be more risky than just sitting on your Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, people need to think about how they want to manage their um, risk portfolio. Like maybe part of your portfolio needs to be more risky. Like the way I think about investing, I think about it more as like barbell, right? I try to have very, very safe investments and very, very risky and really very little in between. Um, although I ended up kind of with just Bitcoin. <laughs> so, um, but, but, you know, this is a way for me to, to, you know, buy more Bitcoin, for example, which is something, you know, that's a risk I'm willing to take because, um, 
over time and overall, I expect Bitcoin to go up and I can always make sure that I can maintain a collateral ratio so that I won't get liquidated. Um, there's other things that people need to think about, right? So if you need cash, uh, especially now, right? Uh, up until something like zero comes around, you really have no choice uh, but to either sell your Bitcoin or to use an intermediary to borrow against and that means you're going to incur potentially taxes. It means that your Bitcoin goes bye-bye. Um, so uh, in that circumstance, it makes way more sense to borrow against your Bitcoin uh, so that, you know, it can, you know, so that you have it when the, when, when the price is, is, is going up again uh, and you have it for the long term than it does to sell. So, um you know, I can't give financial advice because every single person's situation is really, really unique and what they're trying to accomplish is different. I think you need to think like carefully what you're trying to accomplish. The one thing that I can say is um, ideally you want to, if it sounds too good to be true, you better understand why, because otherwise you're buying Terra Luna, right? Um, so, so, you know, I mean, um, understand what you're doing, Dior, right? Do your own research. That's, that's the real key. Yeah, definitely. And I think part of that is just taking personal responsibility, which is kind of like the idea of Bitcoin, you know, hold your own private keys, hold your own Bitcoin, run your own node. Yes. Um, I lost you there for a second, so maybe you can repeat that. Oh, yes. So, sorry. Basically, I was just saying that's kind of the idea of Bitcoin itself, you know, taking personal responsibility, holding your own private keys and running your own node. Yeah. And even with that, you need to do your own research, right? I think there's a ladder of sovereignty, right? You start out, maybe, you know, you you don't hold any Bitcoin, then maybe you hold Bitcoin on Coinbase or whatever. Then, you know, you, 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 you make sure that you have self-custody because self-custody is a responsibility, uh, like any freedom, it comes with responsibility, and 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 you can fuck yourself over. I did, you know. I lost a whole bunch of Bitcoin because I got overly clever with how I was securing it, and then I was like, okay, it's super secure. I'm never going to see it again. No one else is either. <laughs> um, so, um, so you need to be super careful uh, and and responsible about this. Um, you spend most of your waking hours uh, working basically for money, right? So it makes sense to you take the time to make sure that you're thinking carefully about how you're securing uh, all of that proof of work that you've done. Yeah, absolutely. We'll go ahead and uh, wrap up this podcast. Where do you want to send listeners after listening to this and where can they find you and, and, and your team? Well, uh, I would so I uh, set up a website for Sovereign. It's uh, called uh, Sovereign.app. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N.app. Uh, go to Sovereign.app, and you can also uh, register for the early access to zero before it becomes publicly available to everyone. Um, you can check me out uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm at E-D-A-N-Y-A-G-O, Idaniago, and um, start following uh, Sovereign, Sovereign BTC, uh, on Twitter. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming for uh, coming on this podcast. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me.